Red leather, yellow leather. Oh, this again. Red leather, yellow leather. We got to find something else. That's how you enunciate. No, I know. It sounds like... (laughs) It just sounds like a, a kink bar for condiments. That's what I think of. Wow. That... Yeah, no, definitely. It, it was. It's interesting to see the inner workings of your mind there with that little Rorschach. It's just colors and and leather. I don't know. And also, those colors of leather are sort of unusual anyway. They're very unusual. The idea of red leather. I guess you got Adam, Eddie Murphy's jacket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's red leather. Yellow leather. I don't even know. No, nothing. Nothing. Except for somebody who's hot into getting spanked and also likes mustard. Mustard yellow leather. See, yeah. that's another way to practice the enunciation. Right. Just then you get the M in there. Kinks. Mustard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Back to the kinks. Whip me, Captain Suitcase. <laughs> Whip me, Captain Suitcase. That's how I practice mine. A stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Do you remember, um, remember what are they called? Kith, kith hats? Pith helmets? Kith helmet? Pith helmets. Pith. Pith. Pith, pith helmets. Is pith. that where the, was that where like the adjective pithy comes from? I always wonder that. And the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. You know, I personally learned, maybe just because I'm ignorant, that, you know, that after Melania Trump wore that pith helmet, Mm -hmm. you know, in this kind of inappropriate scenario, there's a lot of reporting around it, how it was like this kind of oblivious nod to colonialism, right? Yeah. But at the same time, when I think of a pith helmet, I also think of mail carriers. That's like, that was like the old school mail carrier thing. Yeah, well, there's the disconnect there that I have never been able to reconcile with the mail carrier's whole uniform. And maybe if we have any mail carriers who are listeners, they can explain it. But you have the pith helmet, which would seem to be designed to protect the user's head from falling stones and coconuts and arrows. Of course, the most lethal of all the environmental concerns, the sun... And of course, that's right. And of course, the sun. <laughs> then you have a button-up shirt. Yeah. Regular old button-up shirt. And then you have shorts. Yeah. Which are darker than the shirt. And then just long socks. And it's like, this is going to prepare you for those environmental conditions that you will encounter mm-hmm. as a mail carrier. It's very strange. It's very strange. It seems like it has its legacy in in some sartorial past that we've lost all connection to like the ascot maybe that does something Ah, or the dicky maybe that does something but who the hell knows what it is you bring up a good point about these mail carrier uniforms because you'd think that they should be a bit more functional right they should be designed to protect against some of the most common maladies that befall these mail carriers you want to know what they are yeah definitely Number one, <clears throat> slips and falls. Sure, yeah, makes sense. On your feet a lot, you got to deliver, you know, rain and sleet and mm-hmm. snow, all things yeah. you have to deliver through, and those are all very, very slippery, slippery. services yeah, indeed. Yeah, definitely. Number two, muscle strains, the silent killer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Rain, nor sleet, nor twisted ankle. Uh, yeah, slips and falls is number one. Muscle strains number two. Number three, dog bites. Dog bites, of course. Well, it had to be up there. Yeah. It had to be way up there. Yeah, it's the archetypal bad thing that happens to a mail carrier. Mm-hmm. Man versus dog. Yes. Matter of fact, man versus dog. Stephen, did you know that the publication Business Insider... Just ran a story about how postal workers are being attacked by dogs so much, says the headline, that they have to avoid delivery in certain areas, forcing people to pick up their own mail. This is a real story. This is almost like the ultimate story. It's not even man bites dog, which is the usual idea behind a news story where it's like, well, it inverts what's expected, and that's why Mm -hmm. you're covering it as news. This is even older than that. This is dog bites man or person, you know, or whatever. But this is a whole story about exactly that. It says yeah. mail carriers suffer more than 5,400 bites per year, according to the Postal Service. They apparently, I assume it's them, have instituted a National Dog Bite Awareness Week every year in June. Start planning your party now, I guess. Sneaks up on me every year. It does sneak up on you every year. It's a weird story in that you find all of the things that are expected... Here's the number of bites, 5,400 bites a year. As you said, there's the number of injuries that are sustained. There's a couple of kind of grim stories of delivery drivers and mail carriers who were attacked and killed by dogs in Mald, places yeah. Mald in Missouri and Florida. And then they say, you know what? Here's what happens. Sometimes they'll just cut off service to certain areas like Des Moines, Iowa, Cleveland, Ohio, Greenfield, Indiana, and Roanoke, Virginia. Parts of all of these towns, Stephen, lost mail service because the neighborhood was deemed, quote, unsafe by mail carriers. That's like an apocalyptic vision in a way, right? Like you think of, if you're watching the hit HBO program, The Last of Us, Mm -hmm. there's just these enclaves where they've built walls to keep out the infected and inside Mm -hmm. human dramas percolate to the surface yeah in this case it's the same kind of thing it's like oh no people are locked away from mail delivery because of the dogs that are in their own houses yeah it seems like kind of an outsized influence for a single dog or family cut off the mail people get medication and stuff in the mail right and if a lot of times if you're getting the medication in the mails because you may be prevented from some way from going and picking up the mail yourself. Maybe you have an ailment, etc. One thing the story doesn't cover is the fact that it doesn't say when the mail gets reinstated. Oh, Stephen, this story doesn't say a lot of things. Like, for example, if someone gets attacked at one house, mm-hmm. why does the Postal Service cut off delivery <laughs> to the entire area? That's the show they mean business. I guess so. It's like you're responsible for your neighbor's dog, I guess mm-hmm. is what they're going for. Yeah, why not just the one house? Yeah, exactly. Well, look at that. This is an example of a story that raises more questions than it answers. Like, it's a story about male people being bitten by dogs. I don't understand why this is a story necessarily. And you might ask yourself, and perhaps wisely, why in the hell are we talking about it? But it is such a strange artifact of another age. It's like you're driving down the highway and there's a Model T puttering along. Except the highway is the information superhighway. And the Model T is... A business insider story about how many mail carriers are bitten yeah. by dogs. It's all very it, confusing. It is. It also raises the question, what is business insider? 
<laughs> yes. Well, Stephen, if you want to get inside the business of how dog-based yeah. service shutdowns happen, totally. then look no further. I think what this also points to is the fact that the media covers freaking everything. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, I you mean, gotta like, crank out content. You got to crank out content, but so sometimes you wonder, like, so this story was written February twentieth, right? This was late February. There was a slightly bigger story that also broke in February, and it was not covered, notably, by the three biggest publications in America: Business Insider, Washington Post, <laughs> nor the New York Times. Yes, you must be speaking of the story by Seymour Hirsch that claims that the United States, in fact, blew up the Nord Stream oil pipeline running from Russia to Germany, thereby screwing up all of Germany's energy plans and essentially serving as a kind of act of war, really. This is a crazy story. When it came out, it was one of those things that popped up on my journalist radar in different ways. It was a sort of a patchwork, right? And it was just like you said, it didn't come out on New York Times, didn't come out on Washington Post. It showed up on Twitter and in blogs and in a lot of like lefty, anti-imperialist US press, right? So the story was posted February 8th by Seymour Hirsch. Seymour Hirsch is a longtime venerable journalist. He's been in the game for decades and broke some of the greatest stories of the 20th century. So Seymour Hirsch has a substack that I think he must have created just for this purpose. On February 8th, he drops this story about how, based on a single unnamed source, he finds out this crazy tale in which U.S. Navy divers plant these explosives during a NATO exercise off the coast of Denmark on the Nord Stream pipeline, which is what's been providing Germany and a lot of Western Europe with natural gas from Russia for about a decade. There's these two pipes that are already in service, and then there's these two other ones that were about to come online. So according to the story, these Navy divers plant these explosives. A couple months later, the pipeline explodes. Tonight, sabotage at sea. That's what President Biden is calling the leaks and explosions on the Nord Stream pipelines. The Russian gas lines are essential. They supply 35% of gas from Russia into Europe. They've been attacked, and Nick Robertson is out front. Like a boiling cauldron, the busy Baltic Sea bursting with gas from ruptured Russian Nord Stream reinforced pipelines. These pipelines are only in about 200 feet or so of water, and Russia does have an undersea capability to that would easily lay explosive devices by those pipelines. Denmark's foreign minister uncharacteristically cautious about Russian ships seen in the area days prior. I don't want to go into speculation. Unity among allies about not blaming Russia without evidence. We're not going to get ahead of the investigation. And the pipes that recently stopped sending gas to Europe may never be fixed. There's no kind of turning back on uh, the gas issues, and it's not then going to be possible for Europe to continue to build up its gas reserves for the winter. But even before knowing if Russia's responsible, assessments of what it means are being made. I do think it's a signal to Europe that Russia can reach beyond Ukraine's borders. Uh, So uh, who knows what he might be planning next. An emerging calculation. Putin is escalating ahead of proposing terms for peace. Finger pointing 
immediately occurs. And I think technically it's still, quote, a mystery as to who did this and why, right? This has never really been solved or fully addressed. No, at the time, there was obviously a lot of finger pointing. The U.S. came out of the gate strong, saying Russia did this to its own pipeline to further justify its attack on Ukraine and on and on and on. So Hirsch's story rebuts that entirely by saying, no, in fact, the U.S., which people had been talking about before, the U.S. did this with the help of Denmark in order to create an energy crisis for Germany and for Western Europe, because all of a sudden this cheap natural gas is not available to them and they're going to have to look elsewhere for natural gas. It also, of course, cripples Russia in this way because supposedly, again, this is according to Hirsch's story, quote, state gas and oil revenues were estimated in some years to amount to as much as 45% of Russia's annual budget, end quote, coming from the pipeline. So you can see, according to his story, why the stakes would be so high. It's advantageous to the U.S. to blow this thing up. It hurts Russia to do so. It makes a ton of sense for the U.S. to say nothing about doing it. It also raises the stakes for European countries to also get involved in the war on Ukraine, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. You have now an incentive for them to maybe feel like they've been attacked right in their backyard. It shows potentially that the war is escalating. There's now a looming energy crisis as winter looms and the cost of fuel is going to increase and which has done in Germany, right? Energy prices have gone up and people are having to, in Germany, like sit in the dark and stuff. I've heard these stories from people who are there and it's like, oh yeah, no, things are pretty tight. Energy bills are insane. So it did definitely cause problems for Western Europe, particularly for Germany. So Hirsch's story reads kind of like a spy novel in terms of all the machinations of everybody and the development of this plan and the training of these divers and how they were supposed to go down there and plant these explosives that would then be detonated 48 hours later. But according to the story, Biden didn't want the explosion to go off so close to when these training exercises were going on in the area because it would just point a finger right back to the U.S. So they had to engineer this way to have a buoy that would send a radio signal and would detonate the bombs three months later. And it was all done under the cover of these planned NATO exercises. Again, reading, that's the best way to describe it is that it reads like a real life spy novel. Sometimes I wonder about this stuff too, because it feels so sort of spy novel-esque that it almost makes it easier for the U.S. government to say, oh, of course, this is all bullshit right? Because the story truly is that crazy. And the big criticism from the U.S., what seems to be the source of the reticence from the mainstream media, is that this reporting, we have to note, all does come from one anonymous source who's very close to the operation. That's where essentially 100% of, I mean, other than stuff that you could corroborate just with like kind of knowledge out in the world, But the crux of this story comes from one unnamed source. Right, which is, at least for Seymour Hersh, not really a problem. He's been reporting on government issues for decades and has, as he says, all of these sources that are highly placed that he's been relying on for a long time, and he would never name them. He just knows that they're dedicated to these principles of freedom and so on. And so he doesn't have a problem basing it on a single source. 
And so that's the first clue that you have that maybe you need to look at this in a sort of critical way. A single source, unnamed, responsible for all of the information in this story. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't say where the source is, where they're placed, or in any way try and qualify the statements. So you have to sort of take some of this on faith, which we'll talk more about. But there is already kind of a leap that you have to make right here out of the gate. Exactly. It seems like there's sort of a moving target in terms of when one anonymous source is credible or not. There are tons of stories that have come out over the years that are based on all of these confidential sources that aren't always scrutinized as heavily, at least by the left or the mainstream media, as this one is, right? This is interesting because it's very much center of left or just the mainstream media in general that is really looking at this with a a more critical eye than they typically do, casting aspersions onto this journalist who has reported on some of the most bombshell stories of the 20th century. Hirsch is the guy who exposed uh, the My Lai massacre in South Vietnam by U.S. troops. A South Vietnamese official, the military chief of Quang Nai province, today denied charges that American soldiers on the ground executed several hundred villagers in March of 1968. The province chief said the civilians died in air and artillery strikes that leveled the village after a number of Americans had been killed there by Viet Cong snipers. The villagers' version of the incident was given by survivors yesterday. They said a patrol of 100 Americans stormed into the hamlet, drove all the residents out of their huts, then opened fire with automatic weapons. Two American soldiers, one another. And then it was later cited to be one of the stories that really helped lead to the ending of that war on the part of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He won a Pulitzer he, for that. He won a Pulitzer for that. He reported on Watergate. That led to an award-winning book about Henry Kissinger. Fast forward a bit to the war in Iraq. He's the guy who reported on the atrocities in the Abu Ghraib prison. Blitzer in Washington. The Abu Ghraib prison scandal in Iraq was a serious blow to the reputation of the United States. Top U.S. military officials insisted that until the photos of Iraqi prisoners became public in 2004, they were unaware of the seriousness of the scandal. But an article by investigative journalist Seymour Hersh in the new issue of the New Yorker magazine about the Abu Ghraib investigation contradicts that claim and has a lot more new information. Seymour Hersh is joining us here on Late Edition Science. Thanks very much for coming in. Give us the, the, the immediate headline that pops out from in your mind based on all the reporting, all the new information that you collected in this article. Uh, very simply that the notion, as they told Congress, that our leader, Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of, of Defense and his aides, they all went and testified in May after the stories about Abu Ghraib became public that, oh my God, we just didn't know about it until we didn't realize how serious it was, is simply um, not true. The fact is that within a few days of the incident first getting reported internally, which was in January of 04, uh, the back channel was flying. There were messages going. The fact of the matter is, um, uh, everybody at the top, by the middle of January, knew. The only question I raised at the end of the article, and I'm sure you'll ask me about this in a minute, is what did the president know when? Strong article, as usual, in the New Yorker magazine. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. So you might be hearing about this person for the first time. But you've certainly heard about his reporting beforehand. So, again, this is a guy with serious bona fides. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he's a guy who's had a really significant career as both a freelancer and as a staffer for places like the New York Times and the New Yorker. And part of his kind of meta-narrative is that he was this guy who would find these stories, but that they would be too hot or too unpopular or too consequential. And his editors at one place or another, the New York Times or whatever, wouldn't want to run the story. So then he would take it somewhere else. So that's how you have his sort of bouncing around from place to place. He was freelance during Vietnam, ended up getting a much beloved for him gig at the New York Times for a while, had an editor there he liked. That went sour. So then he went off, started working with David Remnick at the New Yorker. That's where he published, as you said, the story about Abu Ghraib abuses Eventually, he leaned more and more on these anonymous sources and I think made David Remnick uncomfortable. So after New Yorker, Hirsch goes on to write for the London Review of Books and some other places. And at that point, some of his reporting becomes a little bit harder to verify and becomes more controversial. For example, talking about who was responsible for these chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Barry Lee, today's is an explosive and hotly disputed new piece from Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch alleging the Obama administration cherry-picked the intelligence it had about who used sarin gas to kill hundreds of Syrian civilians in August. Now, to be clear, CNN has not verified any of Hirsch's reporting, but let's bring in Seymour Hirsch to explain. So what exactly are you reporting? First of all, I'm not saying I know, but I don't think our administration knew either. And don't forget, we're talking about a president who wanted to go to war against a country for which there's no national security interest here. We've known since spring that the most radical jihadi, if you will, uh, 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 opposition group, rebel group, El Nursa, uh, had access to Sarin. There, there was a lot of intelligence reporting about it. The White House can say anything they want about it, but that is a fact that they had access to Sarin. So, when, they, when the incident took place, they went right away to the notion that it had to be Bashar, and the, the world's press went with them, including the American press, and in fact, they didn't have much of a case. His reporting on that was, again, controversial. He also questioned the narrative around the assassination of Osama bin Laden, saying bin Laden had actually been held captive in a place, and so the government of Pakistan knew that the U.S. was coming after him. So anyway, all of it's just to say he has ended up in the last, I don't know, decade plus as somebody who you could kind of loosely position as pushing against this sort of dominant mainstream narrative, particularly where it makes the United States look, I don't know, kind of like an imperial power. And so Seymour Hirsch then becomes this kind of renegade journalistic figure, this person from another age who is fighting the good fight and trying to find the truth and sort of swimming upstream against all of this pressure. And so that's a really fascinating and sexy story. And then when you think about this posting about blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, hmm. it all fits into that narrative, yeah. right? Like it makes sense that the U.S. would blow it up because it benefits the U.S. to maintain control over natural gas supplies and to hurt Russia in these ways and to incentivize Western Europe to side with them, right? And so you can say on the one hand, of course, it's in the interest of the government to reject this story. And to a certain degree, mainstream media, which you could say relies on government support by having sources in the government speak mm -hmm. to the New York Times and Washington Post or whatever, 
And that's one critique of the mainstream, right, is that it's too friendly to corporations, it's too friendly to the government, it's not pushing back enough. And so on its surface, you can sort of see how it makes sense and is certainly worth questioning. Yeah. Right on cue, the story doesn't get picked up. It doesn't get picked <laughs> up by any of the major publications. You can't find it on any of the various cable news outlets. You don't find it anywhere. And it kind of leaves you questioning a lot of things, right? Of course, it is important to question the validity of the story itself, right? I, reading the story, thinking about it in the context of why this would be done covertly, thinking about what the consequences of this, of blowing this thing up, and then also running the numbers against how this person has reported accurately on many things that were true, but just, you know, put the government in a poor light. This is kind of weird, right? The government or the mainstream media would point to a story like this and say, look at this conspiracy theory, right? This is crazy. You can't believe this. There's not a shred of truth here. For this to, to not be true, you also have to believe in this weird, complicated conspiracy theory in which this person who can dig up stories better than arguably maybe any other living human was somehow duped by a trusted source within the government who created this fantastical, highly detailed, and in some cases corroborated narrative in order to put this subterfuge out in the world. Like that's kind of what the other alternative to this story being true is. Yeah. And I think this is where you get into this space where, you know, we talk about on this show a lot, the idea of how to read the news, how to read the meta narrative around the news, like why all of these stories are covering this thing or aren't covering this thing or why they're covering it this way. And a lot of that stuff is fairly easy. I say easy. It's sort of easy to disentangle if you, you know, are like us where you're obsessive about it and you can tease these things apart and figure out what's really being said. This is a story that is kind of hard for anybody to figure out, right? Like on its surface, it's a complex story. There's a lot of moving parts. A lot of it's really obscure. And so it's hard to, at a glance, figure out how to feel about it. Mm -hmm. There is news coverage of the thing, but, you know, Reuters reported on the fact that the White House denied it. This is utterly false and complete fiction, said Adrian Watson, a spokesperson for the White House National Security Council. Spokespeople for the CIA and State Department said the same. So you can say, well, that's something you would include in a story, but that has essentially zero informational value. Like, yeah. there's no way they're not going to say that. It's like if you believe the CIA and State Department on these subjects, well, then you're just as gullible as if you believe Seymour Hersh's single source. It's a dangerous thing to put all your faith in that when you know that people have a motivation to lie and particularly the government is obviously not going to say yeah you got us we did it yeah and so you see yeah. that with the new york post i also found weirdly something called cns news which i think is like christian news service or conservative ah, see which, what they weighed in on yeah which wants to quote defend and preserve america's founding principles and judeo-christian values got it what they liked about the story is that hirsch emphasizes that he wouldn't give it to the new york times because he didn't think that they would run it and so it's sort of like well the point of that story is that they're trying to like expose liberal bias wherever they can. And interestingly, Stephen, CNS News 
is offering a Mediterranean cruise. They have a little ad on the oh. margins there. Yeah, if you want to go in June on a Mediterranean cruise with CNS News, uh, you can be joined by the likes of Rick Santorum, oh. uh, Dean Kane, and a bunch of other white guys with severely parted brown hair. Most importantly, there's no vaccines or tests required. Yeah, so something to think about for some. You know, thank you, because my calendar's filling up. Um, perhaps what's so neat about this story is this element of trust that we all have in whatever we end up choosing to believe, right? And in this case, it truly is. It feels like one conspiracy theory or the other, right? One crazy story that, that feels too detailed to be false, right? Like this Tom Clancy type shit of divers going down deep into the Baltic Sea and planting C4 that's triggered by a sonar buoy months later, that whole thing. And then the other one is just everything you just heard is completely false per the U.S. government, which like then you just have to choose to believe one or the other. Right. And again, both entities credibility is at stake. So part of this reporting points to this news conference between Biden and the German chancellor Olaf Scholz. If uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how will you how will you do that? Exactly. Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control. We will. Uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that people point to is that before it all happened, Biden and other representatives were kind of emphatic about wanting to shut this thing down. And then after it happened, there was much rejoicing about how the Nord Stream was just a pile of rubble on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. So those kind of circumstantial things don't look great for the United States, you know? Yeah, it brings you back to not really knowing how to feel, but maybe having a hunch about who's right. That's also just biased on our end, because we're kind of wonks with this stuff. And, and obviously, there's this revered reporter. But maybe in this story, we all end up seeing a little bit of ourselves. It's not to say that Hirsch never showed up in the New York Times. In 2018, he wrote a memoir called Reporter, and that was reviewed by... This guy, Alan Rusbridger, who was the editor of The Guardian for 20 years, and now he's the chair of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And he goes through all of this stuff that we're talking about, about how he did great work and broke all these amazing stories, and how his habit of relying on and trusting his use of anonymous sources served him well until it didn't, essentially, and would break down over time. He asks an interesting question, though, at the end of this review, which is, will most future newsrooms ever again be in a position to allow their reporters the resources and time to do the kind of work that Hirsch in his prime so magnificently produced? Mm. So, yeah. you know, there's this acknowledgement that it's not just that Hirsch is this maverick guy who's out there uh, doing crazy work. It's that, you know, the industry has changed and these resources that would allow a freelancer to break these actual conspiracies 
doesn't really exist anymore. And so that's part of the problem here, right, is that one of our critiques of this is that there's no mainstream reporting on it, right? Like we said, New York Times hasn't covered the Nord Stream thing as reported by Hirsch, Washington Post. You don't see it on CNN or MSNBC or any of that stuff. But CNN did actually have Hirsch on. Yeah. So like back then they didn't have a problem putting him up on their platform, right? But there's some. there seems to be something that's going on with this story in particular that's making it something that no one wants to touch with a 10-foot pole, right? And this is not the first time that the government has flat out denied some of the claims that he's made in his reporting. And to quote a follow-up Substack piece by Seymour Hirsch, he says, after I published the first stories about the torture of Iraqi prisoners in Abu Ghraib, a Pentagon spokesman responded by calling my journalism, quote, a tapestry of nonsense. Uh, parenthetical. He also said I was the guy who, quote, threw a lot of crap against the wall and expects someone to peel off what's real. He then adds the final jab. I won my fifth George Polk Award for that work. One thing that I picked up from that is that tapestry of nonsense would actually be a great tagline for journos. And we should hold on to that and make sure that he's not going to use it for something. It's funny because I was going to say that would be a great uh, name for our noise rock band. Yeah. Or just an interior design company, you know, like we'll hang tapestries, but you won't know what they are. (laughs) So, look. What's different? Uh, it could be a couple of things. Could be budgets. Could be mm-hmm. a more general sense of the mainstream media gravitating toward the government, being less inclined to rock the boat, right? Like mm-hmm. they're all afraid of going back to Trump days, to electing another right-wing president. So yep. they're going to be more accommodating to Biden or to a Democratic president. That's a guess. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but... That's possibly one reason why they're, you know, avoiding that. And that also... Totally. I, I, I mean, to, before you go on, it's also... I've thought about this before, too, is that there are some real conspiracies, right? There's been this weird thing that's happened where suddenly, quote, conspiracy theories across the board were being, like, trained to reject them, right? Because there have been so many totally batshit ones of late pizza gate and all this crazy international ring of blood sucking pedophile bullshit right but then by by having so many of those stories out in the world it almost does something where like, if something even sounds like a conspiracy theory the the knee-jerk reaction is to immediately reject it but as you said seymour hirsch and other investigative journalists have accurately reported on these wide-ranging conspiracy theories that are true Yeah, for sure. He's like a baseball player who, man, when he steps up to the bat, he either strikes out or he knocks it out of the park. He's Mm. he's got credibility. It's not like he's a wingnut. And the things that have not been proven are concerning and definitely throw some degree of doubt onto the way that he reports, which is fundamentally the kind of doubt that anyone should have for any reporter who's got a single unnamed source. I mean, that's just... Mm -hmm. That's just problematic, you know? It's That's built into the DNA of good journalism. And in that way, it's kind of like science, right? Science is only proven through replication, through being able to do the same experiment over and over again. And that's how you prove something, and that's how you develop consistency, is, is by doing it over and over. In this case, the problem comes down to the fact that 
the center left, as embodied by the New York Times and all the rest of the mainstream, are ignoring this categorically. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you have the further left, the kind of more anti-American imperialist left, and then some of the right-wing media who are embracing his reporting and are not being critical of it enough, right? They're accepting it on its face and saying, see, it's true in part because the mainstream won't touch it. So you have this weird standoff that leaves everyone feeling very confused and doesn't really solve anything. Seymour did an interview with Democracy Now!, which is a lefty news outlet, and they do good reporting and definitely good interviews. He himself pointed out that the solution is just for some more reporting. Uh, So what happens is when I do my story on Substack, uh, I wouldn't even think, um, I'm embarrassed to say it after all those wonderful years I had at the New York Times, I wouldn't even think he'd take a story like this to the New York Times. Um, They've decided that the Ukraine war is going to be won by Ukraine, and and that's what its readers get. And that's, so be it. I think the world's taken a very bizarre turn. I also, th- you know, it doesn't matter what I think. There's no question there's been a polarization of the press uh, since Trump got in. We're now, we're now on two sides, you know, right, left, uh, Democrat, Republican, however you describe it. If you watch Fox News, you don't watch MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. And if you read the New York Times, uh, you, 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 you're not going to get uh, what the right wing, you know, the, the conservatives have been after the New York Times and Washington Post for their quote, quote unquote liberal views. So we've got a polarization going. And at this time, we, we've got a president, a Democratic president that has done some good stuff domestically. But I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm not understanding the com- total commitment to Ukraine. Can I ask you also that uh, there are several people, obviously, you've gotten criticism at times for many of your exposés, but there are some people who are saying that this particular expose does not have a whole lot of documentation, that it essentially relies on one source uh, of uh, one internal source, anonymous source of yours. How do you respond to those uh, those criticisms that this is a much less uh, documented than previous exposés of yours? I think the reason that Biden and his people in the White House have denied the story and continue to deny it and get accepted by some of the press, my old newspaper, The New York Times, I don't know why they're not doing more reporting on this instead of relying on a denial and walking away from the story. Ditto for The Washington Post. As for the source question, I, you know, I've been doing this so long. I'm not bothered by the fact that, that the government attacks me and that my old newspaper, The New York Times, hasn't written a word about it. I find it sort of you know, that's where we are. That's why people like me are in Substack. It's a self-publishing thing. I don't have to worry about censorship or second thoughts. Uh, but I don't talk about sources. I just, I just, you know, I'm lucky. I've had for 20 or 30 or 40 years people inside who not only are faithful to what they're doing, but also are not afraid to be critical of it. And so um, uh, that's the kind of source that, uh, you know, reporters, you know, uh, dream about. And I've had people like that uh, for forever. And I still do. Who could deny that? What do you say to that if you're a major publication? Why wouldn't you at least direct some resources towards chasing down this story a bit from somebody who for many years was something that helped put your publication on the map? As you said earlier, like it, it appears as though he started his Substack pay- account to break this story. And he said he had over a million hits within a day. So what gives? What gives is I think there is just not a willingness to engage for a lot of the reasons, for the budget reasons, for the political reasons. 
some of the stuff that we were just talking about. It reminds us of those mail carriers where the three things that are going to get you, the three dangers you are looking at as an American mail carrier, they were slipping and falling, tearing a muscle, or, of course, the archetypal getting bit by a dog. Getting bit by a dog. Getting bit by a dog. And, and yeah. similarly, there appear to be three dangers to us, the American people, that this story supposes. Yeah, that's right. One is, if this story is true, the administration's lying to us about all of their strange and terrible little machinations, you know, mm -hmm. threatening the energy supply of another friendly nation. Well, of a bunch of them, of Western Europe in general, and basically stirring up a hornet's nest of international relations. If this is true, we certainly have some explaining to do to Germany right? Because it's freaking cold and we screwed with their winter heat supply. Yeah. Second danger, Russia uses it for propaganda. Whether it's true or not, this thing is already in the pipeline. They're going to throw this back in our face. You found a Bloomberg story that walks us through that a little bit. Yeah. It, according to the B Bloomberg piece, Russia's deputy foreign minister said, quote, our assumption was that the U.S. and several NATO allies were involved in this disgusting crime, which is, of course, exactly what Seymour Hersh's piece reports. If this was indeed reckless, inaccurate reporting, it's basically just walking a real nice piece of propaganda over to the Russians at no charge to them. Now, you could say, on the one hand, that's a justification for not reporting the story at all, eh, which is a whole other can of fish as far as should we not be reporting stuff that is going to make the United States look bad. Obviously, a lot of people think, and possibly including the New York Times, etc., think that we shouldn't be doing that stuff. That may explain their silence. But let's assume for the sake of argument that we need this information to be out there and we need it to be explored. So the solution to Russia using it for propaganda isn't let's back off of it. It's we need to investigate it further. And so that gets to the third danger. The third danger is if the media doesn't follow up, if it doesn't continue to investigate, continue to explore this topic, and the story just goes away, then either we'll forget about it and move on, and or it'll just become more conspiracy theory that's underreported and people are going to spin out on it anyway. Yeah. All of which will, of course, further erode trust in media. Not only erode trust in media, in a way, it, the silence becomes deafening in that, what are we afraid of reporting? That's right. So, you know, journos, right? Part of it is about media literacy and thinking about how to handle these stories and how to approach them. This one, obviously, like we said, is a big one. It, a lot of moving parts. It's very complicated. So how do we move forward? I mean, I think the answer is something like a healthy skepticism. In other words, mm -hmm. go forth and trust nobody in an <laughs> open-minded way. Take Seymour Hersh's reporting and see where it goes, right? Accept that it's possible that it's true. Accept that it's possible that it's not. Be yeah. skeptical of the fact that the mainstream is not reporting it. And so on top of the skepticism, we also need to pay attention to what goes on next, if there's further reporting, or if there's not, both of those things mean something. And then further to demand accountability from the media, from our political leaders, right? Like say, hey, we want to know more about this. Let's keep making noise about it to figure out what's really going on so that 
everyone in media, everyone in the government understands this is something that people care about. It can't just be easily swept under the rug. And hopefully it gets reported enough and we get an answer one way or another, because right now we just don't really know. We're in this weird space where you have to sort of move forward bravely ignorant, I guess. Yeah. But curious, Stephen. Yeah. Curious. Bravely ignorant. Slap it on a bumper sticker. Slap it on our tapestry of nonsense. There it is. I do want to return to that story about the mail carriers for one last time, because I think there's yet another truth embedded in that lovely piece by the Business Insider Institution. One thing that the piece says is that every delivery company apparently teaches new employees the same thing on day one. People will always lie about their dogs. According to the piece, quote, he's never done that before, is at the top of the list of things drivers regularly hear after being attacked by a dog. However, according to U.S. Postal Service spokesperson David Coleman, all dogs have teeth, and you just never know. Words to live by. Stephen, pull up your long socks and pull down your pit helmet. <laughs> We've got some exploring to do. Yes, I will I will don my dated cap. Stephen, this has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. I am Stephen Jackson. And we'll see you next time. Journos is produced by Dave Coates. And don't forget, we are now doing Journos as a service. If you or your podcast has a mystery or some kind of investigation that needs investigating, like, I don't know, a uh, oil pipeline in your neighborhood that's been blown up by somebody, let us know. We're interested in exploring it with you. Email us at journos at journos.net. <laughs>